0: People have opinions without being fully informed.
1: Trust me, I'm a Canadian here. I don't care if you're a Christian, Messianic, or Hebrew roots. I want to know if your theology is biblical.
0: Maybe I'm right. Of course I'm right.
1: If you're going to cite a source, be responsible. You know, cite your source. mom goes to college. Hey, we're just having a conversation. There's only 36 people listening anyway, right? You can Google it wow at what
0: point does history matter at what point does truth matter
1: an alien invasion is it biblical of course it is look there's a way to do scholarship and a way not to do scholarship you got to set your source who's your source my best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows his kid is going with the girl and that about sums it up what up and shalom welcome to the rob and caleb show Show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Heg. With me today, of course, Rob Van Hop. What up, Rob? How's it going, buddy? It's going well. Good, good. Uh, I'm you- just uh, it makes me smile
0: listening to that intro and that new extended intro.
1: Yes, uh, you know, we were getting comments last week that uh, we start when we started, the music started right away. People didn't realize that we were streaming and of course uh they missed it. Well, uh I didn't send out a uh show notes this morning. And we'll talk about that in a second. I didn't send out show notes this morning. And uh right now we still only have 3 people who have logged on. Usually by the time uh, we start, we got like, you know, 15 people in the chat room right away. So, it still didn't work. Still didn't work the way we wanted it to. That's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll better next time, right? Um but yes, yeah, so we have a, a much longer intro. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Uh, what up and shalom to everybody out there in uh, in in Video Land. Uh, you know, I'm 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 dressed down now. Today's going to be a different kind of a show. Let me tell you why. I've been horribly ill again for this what second time in a month. For the past week, it's been uh, I mean down and out. Talk about super down and out. Not good. Uh, and so. Work has been extremely busy, too, trying to get the new site. You know, we, we're doing all sorts of really cool stuff with the site, which is exciting. Um, you know, we're, we're implementing all these new things on the site. We're getting the store and everything put into one site. It's it's uh, it's a ton of work. All hands on deck currently uh, at the Torah Resource Office trying to get all this done. And uh, with me being sick and with uh, all the changes that we're trying to make to the website, I have had zero time to actually... Uh, uh prepare for a show do anything for the show so um this this show right here is going to be a little bit different now we do have stuff to talk about please don't hear me say that we' we don't have stuff to talk about but i didn't uh you know I felt like since i wasn't uh since since i hadn't prepared in the normal way i should you know i i didn't i didn't keep i didn't put the uh the evangelical fatigues on i don't have a tie on today uh just a just a t-shirt so you can tell that i've been slumming it how you doing man what have you been up to
0: Oh, boy. I don't even know where to start.
1: Getting ready, right? Yeah, well,
0: uh, uh, wrapping up, we're we're wrapping up uh, spring quarter Mm. for Tor Resource Institute.
1: That makes me really scared because I haven't, you know, I haven't touched my thesis in I don't know how long just because we've been so busy. And uh, that means I I can feel the pressure of next, uh, you know, the next quarter coming where I'm actually going to have to take classes.
0: But, uh, I'm wearing wearing my proudly wearing my 2016 Tor Resource Family Camp shirt designed yes. by the one and only Michael Gonzalez, and I, uh, I see someone else. I'm not sure if that's who's quoting as Tour Resources. That's uh, Michael that's, or that's Gary. Michael. Michael. So okay, my, so Michael's got wearing it. Hey, see, great minds think alike. So, because uh, Family Camp's been on my heart and mind, of course we're praying for uh, for just a, a wonderful time. And of course, preparing our specific uh, sessions that we're doing, which is going to be really, really cool. I'm really excited. I've already learned so much, like preparing for
1: my sessions. I'm just like, wow, I'm so excited, you know. So, yeah, well, I, you know, hearing in the staff meetings that go on here at Tour Resource, I've been hearing some of the things that people are are uh, are preparing for camp. In the, in the teaching sessions. It is gonna be an interesting, it's gonna be a different dynamic than normal. The reason why is because this year at camp, we're actually doing, during the main sessions, the teachers are teaching things and uh, in a way where you're supposed to then be able to implement them. So then there's work, like workshops, yeah, during the during the sessions where people Like breakout
0: group. Yeah, yeah breakout exactly.
1: groups where, where they'll go, and that's new. We've never done that before. So yeah,
0: um, exactly, exactly. So this is going to be a new format Yeah, for those who've been before. Uh, it's Yeah, uh, just like Caleb put it, we're going to do a kind of demonstrate a certain uh, kind of study approach, and then we're going to assign a small tasks to different groups that are then going to Put their their minds together for that task, and then to come up with a certain result, and then we'll integrate that back into the whole group. So it's going to be very hands-on in that regard, dealing with different tools for Bible study. What makes a good word study? What are the uh, uh, kind of pros and cons of of popular websites? Uh, you know, Strong's Concordance. What, how to use it? How not to use it, etc. To try to just help along those uh, those. Uh, avenues that people uh, engage in when they want to study the scriptures.
1: Exactly. It'll be. It should be a, a very good time. Um, okay, so uh, let's get a couple of things out of the way. The Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Go to TorahResource and find all sorts of wonderful teachings, including uh, I don't know articles. Man, I I'll tell you this. Here's another thing. Going through this website, you know, I've been going through and trying to. Uh, to redo all of the uh, all of the the articles. there are some really cool articles that I didn't even realize that we had. And honestly, I've been renaming some of them so that people will have a better idea of what we actually do have. So anyway, go, there's tons of free articles. If you don't have a library membership, you should get one. Uh, you got to buy a year, but it breaks down to $8.23 a month, and you can basically have access to any of the teachings at Torah Resource in digital format, um, and it's well worth it. Uh, And I think people are just now starting to uh, realize how worth it it actually is. Look at Rob. He's back in the chat room. You know what that means. (laughs) I, I have to interact. No, you don't. Okay. And also, don't forget to uh, to call our comment line and yell at Rob for being in the chat room instead of uh, focusing on the task at hand, which is uh, actually producing a show. Uh, call us at 253-465-3205. You will not talk to either of us. You will just get a message. And uh, yeah, actually, we got a great message. I was thinking about playing it on the air, but uh, uh, asking about Andre Philippe's uh, thesis and whether or not we'll make it available. Well, the answer to that question is actually, uh, I don't know, uh, once our students write their papers, it is up to them whether or not they want to allow us to post them on our site. Yeah, sites. they own it. They, they own, they they own it. it. And not only that, but uh, also uh, we don't want to, uh, uh, obviously, if, it, if there's a good thesis uh, that a student writes, oh, I apologize. Um, if there's a, hang on just a sec if there's a good thesis that one of our students write, we might ask them if we can post it somewhere. However, at the same time, we don't want to uh, be obligated to post every student's thesis that uh, is written, because if we do that, then what if there's a thesis that, you know, Torah resource disagrees with, so on and so forth. Anyway, okay, so uh, is that all out of the way? Well, uh, we can plug our friends Yeshua Shirts as well. Yeshua Shirts has been kind enough to send us a lot of Cool Stuff. Uh, there Rob is sporting the uh sporting the com mug one and of a kind. one of a kind, well, not anymore, maybe
0: one of two. I don't yeah.
1: know. Um, anyway, go to yeshuashirts.com, enter the code trradio into their the coupon box at checkout, and get 10% off. Show them that you love us. Okay, um, so there's a couple of things. First of all, I wanted to play this last week, and uh, since Andre was on and it was a uh, more of a, a serious, uh, you know, a good serious show. Which most of our—I mean—we're serious all the time, right? We're always serious. But I—I I heard this. Now, this is on a show that uh, these guys are kind of uh, sh- showing the ridiculousness of TV preachers. Um, but uh, I heard this. So there's a la- there's a laugh track in the background. You know, people are laughing in the background um, as they're showing this. But I heard this, and I thought maybe this is what people who don't like the Robin Caleb show hear when they hear us talking. On the robin caleb show you ready for it here you go the hebrew word yeah. translated thing yeah is word is "word" right every right. thing mm-hmm. came out of the word or the word you back to see again uh-huh
0: words are things or they're word things so when i say words i just release a thing but you don't see the thing when i say it you heard the thing before you saw the thing before you the
1: thing, it's heard before it's seen. I think that that's what people hear when they uh, when when they don't like the Robin Caleb show and they listen to us. <laughs> what
0: is what is
1: that? <laughs> what did we just listen to? <laughs> it's Kenneth Copeland with one of his uh, ev- uh, TV evangelical buddies, and they, they're trying to explain the uh, the Hebrew word word, which they say also means thing. Oh, Devar. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, that's I, I mean, it's true. I still don't know what in the world they're talking about. <laughs> they're saying that when you, well. <laughs> don't, probably, don't, don't, don't exegete. Don't exegete. No, don't okay. exegete it, please. I just thought it was funny. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, that's what people think when they hear. Rob and Caleb show, and they and they they don't like us.
0: Okay, we could. What I one thing we could take away is just a laugh track. You could just every once in a while just. have a little Oh well, my word!
1: After how great would it be if I just had a laugh track? Okay. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on to more important things. So uh, yeah, this is an email we got. I thought this was, uh, I thought this was a interesting question because, to be honest with you, I have not researched this, at all. And so this is going to fall on Rob to – Rob, you got to pay attention. Out of the chat room. Out of the chat room. Because this question is for you. It's not for me. It's for you. Okay. Are you listening?
0: I am listening.
1: Focus like a laser beam, dude. What are your thoughts on the Cairo Geniza scripts that contain Second Temple documents and mystical Hasidic writings that are drenched in Sufism? islam islamic mysticism avraham maimonides has even been said to say that the sufists have retained some of the long lost traditions of the prophets i also read that sufists are spiritually descended from the ancient essenes i'm curious what's your guys take on this take it easy on me uh, guys i'm just your average messianic jewish layman okay um first of all I was not aware that the Cairo Geniza actually had texts from the Second Temple period. Is that is that true? Well, uh,
0: there's so much to say about that. So yes and no. There, there's a lot of yet uh, in what you just read. A that's I'm glad to hear whoever it is that is is reading that. I mean I'm glad that they're thinking about these things and reading it. I just I want to caution. There are a couple flags went up. And it has nothing to do with the fact that, that people are enthusiastic about learning about the Karaginiza or Hasidism or uh, Sufism as uh, an influence on Jewish mysticism or even that we're thinking back to the Essenes. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with thinking and reading and, and studying those topics to to grow in awareness and, and – uh, just to have some exposure to larger Jewish interpretive history of, of what it means to be a spiritual human or something like that. So there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself as, a, as an area of, of study or investigation. The cautions I want to, or in the flags that come up, and the cautions I want to offer are the clustering of them such in such tight proximity to one another to where there's almost no breathing room I mean, they I mean, in one paragraph, we have we go from Essenes to Cairo Geniza scripts to Hasidism to Sufism. Um, and and so that is just you know it could be dangerous to have them clustered so tightly together without learning to differentiate. And this is where a chronology is a good organizing principle. It's from the Bible, right? Chronology things happen over time and develop so that's a biblical uh tool for us in in seeking to use just weights and measures measures i said it measures but so i would say yes back to your the first point because i have a several points i'd like to make the first addresses the comment plus your comment caleb the uh just to recap what is the kyra geniza? geniza was a synagogue medieval synagogue in Egypt, in Cairo, hence Cairo, that had an upper room that was uh, a treasure trove, basically, of old documents that had Hebrew writing on it, or Hebrew letters. Sometimes it might have been actually Arabic or Aramaic written with Hebrew letters, but in any way, the script was Hebrew, and they didn't want to destroy it. They didn't want to throw it away with the garbage. They didn't want to burn it, so they just store it away, right? Right. Because it might have god's name on it you know there's different religious superstitions maybe pertaining to why we don't throw it away or anything so they call this a geniza A geniza is, is kind of the aramaic or hebrew term for this storage place and over the centuries it just accumulated it's not a it's not a room that someone would go and hang out in right it's just it's like a closet it's like the junk closet of stuff you don't want to throw away but you don't know what to do with it and then you've got new generations coming and they just keep putting stuff well in the late 1800s there were some uh i think there were christian ladies actually who what came aware of this and they went to uh solomon schechter who was a jewish scholar uh very famous jewish uh et- very educated in history and language etc uh, uh, and he was jewish of course um and Helped him go to Cairo to investigate this this Geniza firsthand. So this late 1800s, uh, Solomon Schechter goes and he looks and he's like blown away because he like sees a Hebrew text and he's like, "This is, this is Ben Sirah, this is the Book of Ben Sirah in Hebrew." All we and he knows it only from the Greek. Never in the world has there been a Hebrew text of Ben Sirah. So he starts seeing these things and he, I think it's with in in. Uh, in collaboration with Cambridge University, he starts packing up these documents and getting them back to Cambridge in the UK, so they can start uh, categor- uh, categorizing, cataloging these this treasure trove of Jewish texts from early, I think early earliest maybe eight, nine hundreds, all the way up, you know, through the centuries have been stored. So that's what the Cairo Genese is. Now the uh, the, one of the things that he found, Caleb, now to talk about your question, was he published something called the Zadokite fragments. And it was basically what we call the Damascus document, or I think that was it, or the community rule. One of the major uh, uh, sectarian texts that we now know from the Dead Sea Scrolls was found 50 years before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the and so, Schechter had published this called the Tzaddikite Fragments. He says this is an unknown Jewish sect produced, this is the rule of their community, and he said they must have been from the Second Temple era. I mean, he was guessing. And then he goes on and, you know, he, his lifetime's over, he, he dies, and then decades later, the discovery of the, of the Qumran caves, and sure enough, they find fragments of the same book whether again, now forgive my memory, it's either the community rule or the Damascus document, which are both kind of constitutions for the yachat. And what they realize is they go, wow, Schechter was right. Schechter, we, I mean, he didn't know, he didn't have all the information we had, but his, his intuitions were correct. And what they do is they put those together. They see what was in the Cairo versus what was from, uh, from the Qumran, And there's maybe a thousand-year-plus difference between when that was copied. But they can see the development of the text. It's not exactly the same text, but it's the same structure with more development. So they can see how, and they can do that then with the multiple copies from the Qumran, uh, the fragments from Qumran. They can see the development of the document. Imagine like the Declaration of Independence. Let's say you found Thomas Jefferson's handwritten notes of it or something, and then you saw maybe John Adams' edits, and then you saw the, addition, you know, the final, and you could say, oh, I could see how the ideas were being shaped and massaged and wordsmithed, you know, over time, but expand that over more time. So, so yes, they, there are particularly what, what Schechter called the Zadokite fragments, those we would call second temple texts, but they weren't, they were developed over a stream of
1: Jewish community life that we really are blind to. Okay, h- hang on just a sec. So, so back to, and let me actually get back here. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm quoting this right. So, uh, And I'm not, I'm not trying to put too much weight on the actual question itself, but uh, he says, uh, Second Temple Documents and Mystical Hasidic Writings. Okay, okay, so now that's a di- yeah, good. That's a different. So we're talking. He's he's trying to he's differentiating between different documents here, right? He's not trying to say that they're 2nd Temple Hasidic mystical documents. I think you're right. Okay, and here,
0: here's one thing we have to be aware of: is that the Cairo Geniza is a stash from from different. Um, it's not like all the same school of thought was stab- stashing texts into there. Sure. There, there's all sorts of things. It's a library. And, and there's different scripts. So one of the ways that scholars like uh, Ada Yardini, you know, the uh, scripts of or scholars who study how, you know, the, the paleography, how the letter form, like how they made the Allah or how they made the lamid, etc. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of different writing styles. And so what they realize is they can see Chronolo- they can put uh, on a chronological development a uh, how the, uh, uh, and look at different fragments and place them in time, not only according to what the material it's written on, but the way they were writing because there's different scripts. There's like Sephardic style, there's Ashkenazic style, you know there's different uh, ways of classifying the scripts. But back to the, um, the Hasidic. Now, now we're getting when you start saying Hasidism, we have to make a lot of differentiations. You know, there's there's German Hasidism, Ashkenazic Hasidism from the you know 12th 13th century, what they call the German Pietists, and then we have the later uh, Eastern European Hasidism after the Balik Shem Tov. You know, the in the uh, 18th century. Yes, and those are very different. They both they're both called Hasidism. Yes. Yeah. But they're different people, different aims and and goals and ideology and different
1: texts. So and even even to... even different swings on 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 Jewish mysticism. Sure, sure. Yeah. And then uh, there's the bit about the Sufism.
0: Okay, so Sufism is, uh, it in Hebrew it's with a tzadi actually, suf uh, tzuf, sufim. Uh, but that's from the Arabic. So um, Arabic word for sufim or the 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 Sufis is a stream of Islamic mysticism that has to do with, you know, there's all sorts of meditation, there's seclusion, isolation, different religious values that are embodying in kind of an ascetic lifestyle, right? Someone who's like, they're going to kind of go live in a cave or they're going to seclude themselves and do some sort of meditation on the names of God and things like this to try to cultivate some sort of uh, religious experience or something like that. What we have to recognize is that that is, is a different thing. And it is true that that the Sufism in the Islamic kind of golden age there in Spain did influence some of the Jewish and Christian theologians in some regards, some that were more have this mystic kind of bent in the in the medieval period. And so it's true that um, like uh, Bakhia, uh, Bakhia ibn Pikudah, I think is a, a, his name, is uh, he wrote a book, Hovavot uh, Levavot, which is the duties of the heart. And he wrote that in what I think it was the 12th and 13th century, very influenced by Islamic mysticism. But then we, we do have that in in the 18th century Jewish mysticism they're reading that book as like some authoritative text on Jewish mysticism and they don't realize that it's got kind of the Muslim fingerprints all mm-hmm. over it mm-hmm. so there, there's a lot of nuance to the history it's worth studying for if you're into history and understanding these kinds of things uh, so I want to be encouraging to the person who came up with that question a that it's great that they're reading this stuff b just be careful not to not to be too quick to hotwire connection between the Essenes and hasidism or or you know
1: that, we see this we we sort of we see that we see the same thing uh, the the quick hotwiring of 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 different things that that should not be hotwired we see that all the time in the hebrew roots it's, and messianic yeah short circuit or well, shortcutting well, thing yeah, yeah you you'll, you'll you'll see people who are like oh well you know hasidic Zadik, uh, you know Okay, we take the Hasidic Zadik, and then we uh, then we take Yeshua over here, and we see all these connections, and they must be the same. Well, right, it doesn't it doesn't exactly work like that. Yeshua was around, you know, eighteen hundred years before the the theology of the Zadik came along. Um, I've argued before that I think that they might have been responding to Christianity as opposed to vice versa. All these kind of things. So, yeah, another example of that Caleb, I'm glad you point that out because we know the
0: the Zohar was composed. As a, in, in response to Christian theology and uh, devotion to Mary and, you know, uh, uh, the, of the divine feminine and things like that, and we see the Shekinah in the Zohar kind of as a response, and there's been a lot of work done on this. It's, it's, it's pretty well mapped out now how this happened. But when you take the how the Zohar was read by Isaac Luria— and then his followers, or then how the, how the Zohar influenced early Hasidism in the you know eighteenth nineteenth century Eastern Europe. They are reading the Zohar, but they have no consciousness of the Christian influence. Sure, but they they just, but they're just taking these ideas as if they're inherent Jewish ideas. Yeah, and now you have Messianics who read that stuff and they think, oh look, it's actually. Ancient Jewish teaching from the second century, uh, Shimon Bar Yochai, but it's actually look, it's actually full of what we see in the Gospel, and they they are disconnects all over the yeah. yeah, yeah, they're they're missing the point of of chronology and and history, and and we're big proponents of you know we gotta let history be history, and we we gotta let there be a chronology, just like. Paul in Galatians he says you know we got to we got to understand that Abraham came before Mount Sinai, right? Abraham before he was even circumcised, he was reckoned as righteous by faith. And that's a core chrono- the chronology in the Torah for Paul's argument is is so important. He says we have to let to see things on a chronology. And Paul doesn't make that up as a value. Chronology is not a new value for Paul. He finds that in the scripture itself. Sure. Adam, right? Came before Noah, right? Noah came before uh, Abraham. Abraham came before Joseph. Joseph came before Moses, right? Uh, Moses came before uh, Samuel and,
1: and David. So we have to let the chronology be the chronology. Okay, so I'm glad you actually brought up you, you kind of segue nicely into um, one of the things that I want to talk about. Now, uh, so... I think for messianics, Hebrew roots, whatever you want to say, and you know, honestly, well, I was listening to that the lecture by uh, by David Wilbur again, or not lecture, it's a debate David Wilbur did with a with a Christian uh, sincere, uh, you know, truly sincere Christian uh, uh, street preacher who uh, who the, the street pre- preacher uh, took up the what I consider the traditional. And we can talk about kind of the history of how this happened, but kind of the traditional uh, talking points of Christianity. Um, and when we when we look at these traditional talking points, what are they? Um, Jesus came to do away with the law. He came to uh, take us out from underneath the law, and you're no longer under law. And this is the you know this is the, what I consider the traditional talking points. You're no longer under law, you're under grace. Therefore, and, you know, this, is, this was, uh, he basically said if, you know, this, this gentleman who was uh, debating uh, Wilbur, he basically said if you, if you are trying, to, if you go back to keeping the Mosaic law, you're accursed. What, you know, what do you mean go back? <laughs> well, and this is, a, I mean, there are so that many. Implies the, that implies you left it, right? Or something? doesn't yeah. If you go back. Well, he uh, said, so, so so, there's so many things, there's so many different facets of this, And but let's finish this thought first. One of the things that we as Torah-pursuant believers, and, you know, David Wilber said it best, I'm not in the Hebrew Roots movement. I'm a Christian who wants to please God and, you know, and, and loves God and wants to keep his commandments. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so one of the things that we as torah Pursuant believers continue to face is this idea that Paul has spoken against the law and it's so it's so easy to see that if you just read this portion of scripture you can see that Paul is doing away with the law or if you know and, and that that we're no longer under law right choose this uh couple verses out of Romans and you'll see or choose this chapter in Galatians and you'll see or you know go to first Corinthians you know choose several different passages and you'll see that Paul clearly is is telling us that that uh, the law is bad and uh, we shouldn't be keeping it what I've started to realize in the past couple of days is that I think that it does us as bel- believers who are uh you know who are love the Torah and uh, believe that the Torah is God's uh, way of continuing to uh, the process of sanctification through believers, through the Holy Spirit, right? For those of us who love the Torah and are are, uh, finding joy in it, I think it does us a disservice to attempt to, when we have somebody who's just coming to us and saying, okay, what about this verse? What about this chapter? I think that's a disservice for us to uh, attempt to respond to those things. And the reason I say that is because I think that what people who are trying to tote the the traditional Christian line are missing is what the implications are by saying that Paul is preaching such a, such a message. Um. There's a lot of different places that we could go right now. Uh, I I have a my, can I just respond to it at a gut level?
0: Because I know that how I grew up believing, right, and I know that I had to wrestle. You know, there was a, a wrestling match that went over a decade or so. You know, with myself, and it had to do with it's it it was learning a, a way the challenge of learning to think about something that was completely foreign, right? Something that, something that is so foreign, like you start talking about the old Testament and the law of Moses, it just feels like you're like, I don't even know how to think about it. I've never been told to think about it and it can threaten. And I believe I love God. And now you're telling me all this and I don't understand it. And it just adds noise to my faith and you have to be wrong therefore i have to be right because i believe correctly
1: and you're telling me stuff that's increasing my my anxiety well this and- this this conversation could probably go for for two shows but the, but let's start with a little bit of of history on on what's happened in the past 40 years okay i and and i I'm not trying to, you know, I don't want to st- uh, stop your line of thought, but no, sorry, go for s- it. Some people might might not even understand that this is even a conversation that's being had. Um, people in the Christian church, I think, a lot of the time they hear their pastor might mention that they have, a, you know, a wackadoo friend or something who's saying the the Torah is still in act today, or or that we should be keeping the laws of of Moses or whatever. Okay, um, but. The point is that uh, I think that the that the Torah movement, I guess for lack of a better word, the Torah movement is gaining a lot of traction in the in the Christian Church, and I think that uh, I think that there's some. Um, I think the Christian Church is finally having to start to notice this. There's I, I won't I. I suppose I probably could, but I won't mention names. There's a, a, a very, very, very large church here in Tacoma, Washington. And, uh, the, the pastor is a well-known pastor <clears throat> in this area. He, uh, is, uh, on the board of a, uh, of a seminary here in, uh, in Tacoma, which my grandfather taught at and my father has taught at before. Um, and, uh, they have a, a, a very nice facility and whatnot. Well, Someone just told me that uh, within the past month, he has gone to the board at the church and said that uh, he believes that they should be uh, keeping the Sabbath and that they are going to move their uh, services to Saturday and that they're going to start keeping the festivals. This is a huge step for uh, what I would consider. I mean, it's not a mega church, but it's it's large in number. And I'm just waiting to see where the heads roll. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, right. The board's going to accept that. Who knows? Maybe. Um, <clears throat> but the, the point is that there is some history here. Up until the 19th century, actually until the 19th century, you you had Christianity um, start to – well, we had things like creeds, right? And we had catechisms that kind of governed the way that the church – whether or not they're biblical or not, this is this is not the point. Uh, they kind of governed the way that, that, that evangelical churches and the Catholic church functioned up until the Reformation – and then the then the evangelical church comes onto the scene, and you have the same thing, right? You have these catechisms, you have these these church creeds and whatnot that that essentially told people who were looking at the church what the church believed. Well, part of these creeds and part of the what was uh, was strongly believed was that things like the Sabbath were certainly still in act, and that and that Christians should keep the Sabbath. Now, granted, it was it was uh, changed according to these creeds to to Sunday uh, and not Saturday, but the idea that the Sabbath that one of the Ten Commandments no that longer— That God's law, right, right. That the law went away was was simply just—I mean, no one would have ever said that. I mean, even the Westminster uh, Catechism, uh, what is it, uh, number 14, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The law of God. Okay, exactly. so, so right in there we have law. And even Calvin comes out. Now he changes it a bit, right? And he says that uh, in his catechism, he asks, "What is you know what are we to obey? We're to obey the law of God. What is the law of God? The law of God is is uh, 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 four commandments in the beginning, six commandments in the end, and uh, therefore the law is the Ten Commandments. So even Calvin is giving credence to the Ten Commandments, and 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 uh, then later on, of course, you have the Baptist Confession into Spurgeon. Spurgeon preaches uh, that the that the Sabbath certainly is to be. Uh, kept by the the Christians, okay, so where did it change and this is a this all the change between the the
0: repeated affirmation of the ongoing obligation of believers to the law of God to a new state where now oh well it's just been done away right that's what you're talking about how did it change from state A to state B
1: Well, I I guess yeah, I guess what my question is is where did the, where, where did the church begin to say you no know, something like the, the Sabbath. Now, granted, the, the festivals have been uh, you know, basically put on the shelf for quite some time by the church. At least in some ways. And uh, this is even another debate that we could have, but obviously the Sabbath was something that the church upheld for up until the, the 20th century. So what what I see start starts to happen is you start to have uh, this push away, and I think it's late in the 20th century. My grandfather, who was a Baptist pastor for over fifty years, he he kept the the Sabbath his entire life. It was on Sunday to him, of course, but he kept the Sunday Sabbath, and he thought, you know, of course, every believer should. When we start to see uh, this really hard shift against this is in is in uh, you know the, the 70s, I think probably before that, but especially in the 70s, what you have is you have really good scholars like NT or like EP Sanders, NT Wright, Jimmy Dunn, EP Sanders was the first one who did it. So he comes out with this this uh, article at the uh, at the Society of Biblical Literature and what he proposes is a new perspective on Paul. And this is what has essentially been debated for the past 40 years now is the new perspective on Paul. And from this one, uh, you know, theology that Sanders puts out, which he eventually wrote on, you can find uh, well laid out in Paul and Palestinian Judaism, um, what he basically is suggesting is that scholarship has been wrong. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you think I'm wrong here, uh, uh, Rob. I think what he actually did – now, we could talk about the new perspective on Paul, but I think one of the main functions of the new perspective on Paul was to say we need to see Yeshua and we need to see Paul in first century Judaism lenses. We can't see them from the Christian church lens of the 20th century or the 19th century, the 18th century. We have to put Yeshua and, and Paul back into first century context. Rob is totally off in the in the chat room no, right I'm, now. I'm listening. <laughs> so I mean, do, I'm actually do you, doing a pretty good job. Of it. Do you think? Do you think that uh, you think I, I'm on track there? Do you think that that was one of the the shifts well, in scholarship? What,
0: in terms of understanding, uh, well, I, I look at it like this. Sanders was kind of like in the 70s when he wrote that Paul and Palestinian Judaism is like an opportunity to take the plank out of the eye of now, I think, I think Sanders came from a Lutheran background. Um, but, yeah, to say, look, we can't keep characterizing... Um, we can't... We can't oh, how, how would I say that? He would say there's no gain, there's no scholarly gain to better understand Paul's writings or the Gospels if we continue to mischaracterize first-century Jewish life by taking later uh, caricaturizations of what, quote, Judaism is and keep putting that back on. And, and Sanders says basically much of church history, sadly, in Christianity, that is just as what has happened, is they've anachronistically imposed a, a caricature of Judaism versus, versus Christianity back into the first century and, and then read Paul, uh, et cetera, as, as that. Now, one of the things is, is for example, if we read um, read Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, I mean, every time he's all of a sudden, you know, he's he reads a line of Paul, and then all of a sudden he's, he's totally goes off on the papacy, and and how Roman Catholicism had become like works based and indulgences. You start, and so he's so what what uh, Sanders' work has done is tried to help loosen us from the deep trenches of thought that we inherit from like Luther against Catholicism and and this sort of thing, uh, to say, let's try to particularly, here's one of the advantages that we have in Sanders' heyday, was Dead Sea Scrolls, learning more about the feet on the ground perspectives of first century Jewish life, new texts, etc., that we want to account for as good historians, and we can't get good mileage. We're not making, we're not being good stewards of those historical resources if we keep imposing medieval uh, dichotomies or pictures of Judaism back into that world. So, yeah, Sanders w- uh, helped loosen that. Uh, and there's so in the '80s, '90s, and, and early 2000s up to today, Caleb, as you're talking about, we've only had a great increase in. People diving into the to Dead Sea Scroll text, to the archaeology of the first century, um, you know, and and on one hand, on the other hand, is the learning what the planks were. Oh, we had a plank here. Oh, we had a plank in our eye here, in that we were mischaracterizing because of poor terminology choice or anachronism. We weren't paying attention to development over time. Okay. So all these different kinds of things come together and we start getting a different picture. And what I'm hearing you say is that we there's a lot of people in the common churches that are protected from this whole conversation and then haven't even learned to think in these new ways.
1: So, you know, the chat room's off on a, on a totally different tangent, talking about sacrifices, whether or not the death penalty is uh, is in, in uh, you know, if we had a temple, if the de- death penalty would be uh, implemented. Uh, that's up to uh, the the leaders of Israel at the time. Obviously, if, if uh, Israel is uh, serving God again uh, under the temple rule, then certainly— I think that there's already a death penalty right now in Israel, and we Wages
0: don't. Have sin. Paul said. Paul pointed. Well, hang Wages on. Just say sin is death.
1: Look, if, if they're putting people into a uh, into an electric chair, I mean, I don't see people him uh, and Han about that. Israel has a death penalty; they're just not using stones right now. The point is, is that uh, you know somebody else says. Uh, and uh, our our good friend, Philip, who, you know, iron sharpening iron, Philip is a, a great asset to the chat room. He says, let me be simplistic in, in the matter of sacrifice and uh, possibly contra- controversial here. In my reading of scripture, all sacrifices and offerings have been fulfilled in Yeshua. What do you mean by fulfilled? I agree they've been fulfilled in Yeshua. Does that mean that we're not going to do them again? Ezekiel 40, uh, 46 specifically talks about a sin sacrifice again in the millennial temple. And not only that, but Zechariah uh, tells us that uh, that the nations will come up and celebrate uh, Sukkot. There are certainly sacrifices that go along with with uh, with these these things. The idea of time and that for some reason time would would govern whether or not the new covenant was an act or not. Abraham was was uh, and Moses were both justified through the new covenant, right? That doesn't mean that they didn't sacrifice. All the people who who were uh, part of the elect before Christ came was were still sacrificing. Why? It's not time bound. It's a symbol of what the Messiah would do. It leads people to Christ. It leads people. It shows what the Messiah would do. The idea that all of a sudden we're going to stop doing them in, in the millennium, I think, goes against what what uh, the Scripture says. Are they fulfilled in Christ? Yes, they've been fulfilled in Christ since the foundations of the world. Paul tells us, right? And this is actually this is really good because I think that, and you know, I'm I'm not trying to I'm not trying to uh, to uh, you know pick on anybody in the chat room. All I'm saying is that this is really good because. And this kind of shows my uh, some of the conversations I've been having in the past week about the idea of what does it mean to be fulfilled. And and it, what it really comes down to is the question of what did the Messiah come to do? What did he accomplish when he died on the cross?
0: Okay, you know, well, yeah, that's that's the core question.
1: That's the core question. And the,
0: and to a lot of the Christians Why did Paul say I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified?
1: Exactly. So Right, so so what is that? Yeah. I think for a lot of Christians out there, the idea that, uh, that is that Christ came so that we don't have to keep the law anymore. I honestly think that that's what most yeah, Christians so believe. The, that's, that's the change, what I, <clears throat> what I wanted to get at. Caleb, you described
0: the Westminster Confession, you know, et cetera, where they would never entertain such an idea and now all of a sudden in in popular american christianity you have the way you just put it and it's like those are how did we get from one to another and i think it has to do with common people's conception come from the way they they're listening to preachers explain the bible to them right i mean it's it there's been a i think i think the teachers the popular teachers have gone uh, are, are not as sharp in the word. Their swords
1: are, I think, much more dull. Can I read this to you? I'm sorry. I want to go back to Luther sure. and Calvin real quick. So uh, I've been digesting this book, which uh, if if you have not read Dr. Daniel Block, who uh, has agreed to come on this show now, uh, we're very excited for this interview. If you have not uh, read any of Dr. Daniel uh, Block. I cannot recommend his work enough. As a Christian scholar, this guy is so on point. It's it's uh, shocking. This book is titled The Gospel According to Moses, Theological and Ethical Reflections on the Book of Deuteronomy. Um, just absolutely dynamite. And this is not the only book that I'm reading of his right now. This is one of three books of his that I'm reading currently. Uh, he says, to the extent that early church, the early church used the book of Deuteronomy, the church fathers and other sp- uh, spiritual leaders tended to follow Paul's lead in interpreting Deuteronomy christologically. But in their application of the laws, they offered re- they often restored to. I'm sorry. They often resorted to spiritualizing the details. By marshalling the shema or Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, to defend Trinitarian doctrine, they obscured its original contextual meaning. And the Reformers, we witness two different disp, uh, dispositions towards the laws of Deuteronomy. Luther tended to read the laws of Deuteronomy through the lenses of Paul's rhetorical and seemingly antinomian statements, uh, for instance, Romans 7, 4 through 9, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Galatians three ten through 25, as his own de- debilitating experience of works righteousness within the Roman Catholic Church. And this is what caught my eye when you were talking about Luther, is that Luther sees works of the law essentially as the works that the Catholic church has heaped upon the people. Consequently, he saw a radical contrast between the law, which kills, and the gospel, which gives life. His emphasis on the dual function of the law, civic to maintain external order on earth, theological theological, uh, theological to convict people of sin and drive them to Christ, missed the point of Deuteronomy. This book presents the law as a gift of grace, and this is a great this is a great way to, to talk about the law. It's the gift of grace. So this book presents the law as a gift of grace to guide the redeemed in the way of righteousness leading to life. Like Luther, Calvin insisted that no one can be justified by keeping the law. However, through the gift of the law, Israel is instructed on how to express the gratitude for the redemption and bring glory and delight to God. So he's he's showing this contrast between Luther and Calvin uh, within the Reformation. And we start to see this split already uh, within the Reformation, right? Against the Catholic Church, as opposed to what the what the Torah was, perhaps really given for. What was the Torah really given for? It was a gift of grace. And this is interesting. When, when we hear these terms, you're no longer under law, you're under grace. If the Torah was given as a gift of grace, and I know this is Block's wording, right? But if the Torah was given as a gift of grace, what does it mean to no longer be under law, but under grace? And this is the point of why Yeshua came to die, is that he took us out from underneath the penalty and of the law and what was the penalty of the law? He who, who sins cursed sh- cursed is he who
0: who does not fulfill the words of the book. to Do them basically. And yeah, Paul it, it, quotes it
1: in Galatians three. He quote uh, he's quoting Deuteronomy twenty eight, I think, or
0: towards the end of Deuteronomy.
1: And the wages of sin are is obviously death, and we're not talking about uh, a a death uh, that is is done once you die, but a, a spiritual death, an eternal spiritual death. Not only that here's here's a passage Galatians five.
0: Because he says if you're led by spirit, you're not under the law, meaning he's already established in chapter 3 the curse of the law, what that means. He says now the deeds of the flesh are evident. He says that there is something to judge. He says which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that means that they're under the death penalty. Yeah. Right? I mean, what— where are you? There's no other place, right? I mean, if you if you're not part, if you do not inherit the kingdom of God, we call that hell, right? And that means you're sentenced. That's that's.
1: That you are guilty. Death, you're guilty. Yeah, that's the death penalty. Yeah, yeah. If the
0: death penalty had been done away with, then it would be like we'd all be Rob Bell. Like, oh, love wins. We all go. We all, you know, there is no hell. It's just a you know myth. No death penalty. So, so the death penalty, what, what we're talking about is authority. When people say the that they say, well, because I saw it, I don't know who did it. But someone says, well, we keep the Shabbat, but we don't go around stoning people. Well, I don't have the authority. I'm glad I don't even have the authority. I'm okay. glad that the, the Lord, by his providence and sovereignty, has m- t- rearranged the authority structure. But well, there's well, uh, still death penalty in the world. Let's talk someone, about let's talk about authority. He, he, he hasn't removed death penalty under the authority of King Messiah.
1: Well, not only okay. Hang on, just a second, let's talk I mean, about
0: Matthew. Remember, he says, "Enter." You know, he separates the the, the parable where he, where the Messiah comes and he separates the sheep from the goats. What does sure. he tell the goats? Boom. Eternal damnation. That's a that's a judgment
1: that's under his authority to make let's pretend that the that the temple wa- was not the only place that we could sacrifice let's pretend that uh, we could sacrifice at our homes okay we still wouldn't be able to just sacrifice would we because we have to have a priest right you take you take your offering to the priest well if you don't have a levitical priesthood around you guess what you can't sacrifice like that not only that but we don't so uh the idea that uh, that there will be that, that there is no death penalty I don't know. It's, it sure seems to me, and I know that when uh, Philip's right in terms of talking about millennial uh, issues, I know that there's a lot of controversy even within, uh, you know, uh, believing circles of, of, of Torah communities and whatnot. Uh, so whether or not, uh, you know, my idea of what the millennium is going to be like, I, I don't know. I wouldn't fall, necessarily follow my sword for it. At the same time, it seems to me that when Yeshua reigns for uh, a thousand years, which I believe he will, uh, that people still live and die. I believe that they're still... You know there is still this, uh, and people still rise up against the Messiah. It seems to me that's what uh, that's what I I, I think happens. Anyway, okay. Uh, the the other thing that I wanted to mention, and this is just something that that uh, keeps coming up in my mind, and give me your thoughts on this, Rob. One of the things that people claim about. Paul is that Paul did away with uh the law and and that uh and they go instantly to circumcision. Oh, Paul clearly speaks against circumcision. Correct me if I'm wrong, but circumcision is not part of the Mosaic Law, it's part of the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, yes, True we bet. do we do see it in the Mosaic Law, but it came first in the Abrahamic covenant. Paul specifically says in Galatians 3:17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. In other words, the the Abrahamic covenant, which says that the Gentiles will be blessed by the coming of the Messiah through the line of, of, uh, of Abraham, right? That they'll be blessed by that Messiah. Their inclusion into salvation is the Abrahamic covenant, no Christian wants to get rid of the Abrahamic Covenant. And, and Paul specifically says in Galatians 3.17 that the Abrahamic Covenant is still in act today. Well, then how in the world are we getting rid of circumcision? Wouldn't that mean that we're getting rid of the sign of the, of the covenant that says that Gentiles come into, the, the, uh, into salvation through the, the new covenant that is the Messiah?
0: Yeah. What happened is early on the, the conversation about circumcision got hijacked. I agree with that. And it got hijacked in the first century. It was already hijacked. Paul, When Paul came and was doing his, his, his ministries or his mission trips and his preaching and writing his letters, the conversation had already been con, uh, confused by other Jewish teachers. And we know that you just look at the way Philo talks about circumcision. You look at the way circumcision is mentioned in the Maccabees um, and other... Uh, Second Temple Jewish texts. People were making it mean all sorts of different things. Josephus gives a bunch of different ways and different peoples that practice circumcision. So there was already a lot of noise in the air. One of the things we have to remember when Paul's making an argument is he's talking about people who are putting Genesis uh, 17 ahead of Genesis 15 or equating them and saying that, you are not... Rec- we, th- basically, imagine a Jewish community group zealous for their scriptures who are saying, you're not one of us until you're circumcised. And only if you're one of us are you reckoned as righteous before God. And so now what it does, it equates those. It flattens... It, it squishes a life of of faith and growth from faith and trusting God is your father. That means no man's mediating between you. you. You have... You... Uh, are a child of God reckoned as righteous before him by faith. Now someone's telling you, No, actually that's wrong. You don't belong until you do XYZ yeah, XYZ, yeah. And now the person's that what does that do to the person's soul? They they have they have the joy of faith and belief
1: but now they're like they have a stumbling block.
0: Well, not now it's only, like, wait a minute, you're telling me that this
1: is false. Not only that, but it's it's excluding one of God's children from the that, flo- from, that, from the community. So so now all of a sudden the, the idea of circumcision
0: has been hijacked to mean something it's not. And Paul goes at great lengths to try to to try to sort it back out to say, look, we have to read the Torah in order, hence Galatians, he says, you know, Abraham, the promised Abraham was 400-some-odd years before Sinai. He's trying to bring that chronology that faith and righteousness are a gift that come together, whether it just as with Abraham before he was ever physically circumcised, that that is a valid moment in sanctification that has to be protected. And he goes in Romans 4 to say the same thing, that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of that of now that moment. But he's he's framing it according to how it is given in the Torah. That's what we, we need to really recognize that Paul is really doing a, a wonderful service for us and particularly for his audience in the first century that were that we're just here in, let's say, the Book of Jubilees, right? If you if Paul came to a group that had been discipled under the Book of Jubilees, they'd be believing this. They'd believe angels are circumcised. That's why Jews are circumcised. And I become like an angel when I get circumcised, and I cannot eat with Gentiles, right? If you believed the book of Jubilees before you ever heard the gospel, that would be your worldview. People who are physically uncircumcised cannot be saved, and you can't even eat with them, right? So Paul's dealing with that kind of junk that people are carrying around theologically, all in the name of the God of Israel. And he's like, he's, boom, he's like, he gets out the sword and he says, no, no. This is wrong. You can't adopt this kind of lifestyle or worldview because you're going to abuse the greatest commandment Mm. and the the one like it. You're misrepresenting the God of Israel and you're not going to learn what it means to fulfill the whole Torah, which is love God with all your heart, soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And instead, you're going to be getting into more uh, schisms and sectarianisms and all this kind of mythologies and and. astrology and trying to figure out, you know, just all the nonsense that we see on the, on the ground, uh, in the first century, he's trying to bring clarity of thought. I think he does a wonderful job and I think it's inspired to reading the Torah with the chronology in mind, recognizing that righteousness is a gift. Faith is a gift and it comes by God's will being born of God, back to John chapter one, not born of men, not born of the will of man or the flesh, but it's, but it is being born from above and that that could be, it could be a Jew or a Gentile. It could be a slave or a free person. It could be a male or a female. And so all these religiously instituted dichotomies of who you'd eat with and who not and who should sit where and who's, who has the power you know, Yeshua undermined all that when he was, got down and washed the feet of his disciples. That totally flipped the meaning of the symbol of foot washing because they're like, I mean, even Peter's like, no, I'm not going to let you wash my feet because, because of the humility. He wasn't ready. His worldview, as Jewish as it was, was not ready for that kind of humility because it, it was too close. It was too personal. It was too intimate. But Yeshua insisted on it. Paul's doing the same thing but he's not doing it with foot washing. He's, he's fighting at the level of these symbols like Messiah, circumcision, righteousness, Torah, faith, right? These are where the battles are. And it's the same thing today. You have guys coming, you know, you have the Jehovah's Witness come to your door or the, or the Mormons and they all have Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus. They all have Jesus as part of their symbolic world. But we got to say, no, we got to talk about, are you guys talking about the same person? Let's get the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness there at the same time and we'll talk about Jesus.
1: One of the things that, that uh, I've, I've really, uh, I don't know, I, I mean, I've always known this, but one of the things that I think is so vital for people who are uh, in conversations with others who <clears throat> are opposing the idea of, of uh, you know, Torah and, and those kind of things, when we look at Paul, I mean, take, take the rest of the Apostolic Scriptures out of it. If we just looked at Paul for a few seconds— if, if, the, if the traditional, if the traditional uh, theological stance that uh, Paul is speaking against Torah is actually true, then how can we reconcile that he contradicts a significant portion of the Bible? You know, within the Torah itself, the first five books of the Bible, the term throughout all your generations is used 76 times. 76 times throughout all your generations. And what I hear the, the tr- traditional Christian church say is that's – Paul said that that's not true. You know, the Mormons, when I was talking to the Mormons last, uh, they said – I showed them, you know, Matthew 5.17. I said, well, Joseph Smith said that the law was done away with, and I showed him that part within his commentary on, on Matthew. And I said, uh, he, you know, he, he's directly contradicting what Jesus said. And they said to me, yeah, but he was a prophet and prophets have the ability to change the the word of God. Is this really what evangelical Christianity is teaching now? That Paul somehow was given authority to change the word of God? And Which if would that would be weird because Paul cites
0: scripture. How much of Paul's letters is he just citing scripture? If he's it well, would be like, why would I dance around in a house and say, look how great I can dance if I'm slowly taking the floorboards out from underneath it?
1: Well, I mean, the, the other question is, is if, if, uh, if Paul was given the authority to change scripture, let's pretend that that's true for now. Okay, well, if that's, if that's the truth, then why would we assume that God couldn't give that same authority to someone else like Joseph Smith in the 1800s? What uh, I mean
0: yeah.
1: – I mean, why, why wouldn't Muhammad have the uh, ability to come and change the word of God? And, and why wouldn't uh, Islam be true or Mormonism be true? The, the whole point of the written word of God is that it was given by God directly to man. It is the measuring stick. If you say that somebody can come along and change it, then what measuring stick do you have anymore? You lose all ground of, of – of, you have no compass anymore. You're just left to, to say, well, this guy says he's from God, and, uh, you know, he's saying things that are against Scripture, but God's given that authority before. He gave it to Paul, so why couldn't, right. you know? Here are, good,
0: here are some good verses, Romans 7, 12, Romans 7, 12. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Yeah. Okay, right? So that's, that's all present tense. This is post-resurrection, right? This is post-cross. Romans seven twenty two. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. He wants to do God's will. This is the whole point of yeah. Romans seven. Is that the He wants to. He wants to. He joyfully concurs with the Torah, but he's what he does. He's the Torah by the Torah is the knowledge of sin. That's what he says. But he says the Torah is a mirror. Well, I'm using James's word now. Mirror. Paul doesn't use that right there. But how do I? He, he, he wants to do God's will, but the Torah, as delightful as it is for him to study and meditate upon, he can't help but see that he has fallen short of the mm, glory of God. Yeah. And he's like, what do I do? How can I, how can I be a Psalm 119 believer where I breathe and it's like I rejoice in your statutes. Open my, open my eyes that I might behold the wonders of your Torah. This is Paul's heart. But at the same time, it's like, I'm a sinner. Yeah. Death penalty. What do I do? The curses of the Torah are on my soul. I have no way to connect with the God that I love from this distance and that, that I see as holy and just and good. And he says, that's Romans, the end of Romans 7 and Romans 8. Praise God, because he sent Yeshua, who, who God knew that, right? God knew that I was in bondage to sin, and he... Didn't ask me to do anything different. He didn't ask me to perform better. Oh, you're not keeping the Shabbat right. You need to, you need to light the candles a half hour earlier than you are. You you can't carry that. That's not what you need to. You know that's not the way. Even though that's what groups were trying to do. They were trying to fine tune how to be holy. Well, and Paul says no. It's Yeshua came. He died for me. He paid the price. He took that curse on himself so i participate in the death of messiah and so that part of the torah that curse of the torah upon me i've already, my my debt my sin debt has been paid because i have died with the messiah and yeah. now the life i live is messiah's resurrected life which is a pro torah life it's a pro torah spirit
1: so uh, the th- the other thing that we need to realize is okay let's you know are we Do we really believe that all 66 books of the Bible are inspired by God? And if the answer is yes, and... We have Christians who are going to say yes, and then attempt to tote the line that that uh, Yeshua was, or that Paul was speaking against Torah, or that the Torah was flawed, right? The Torah was flawed, and that we need uh, the, and and Yeshua came to to fulfill that, so that we don't have to keep or it give anymore. Us a better, give us to a give better. Give us something better. If that's the case, then how how in the world could King David say in Psalm 19:7, "The law of the Lord is perfect"? Right. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise is simple. So, is that verse then not part of scripture? I, I hear a
0: sons of Korah, chorus
1: Yeah, around. yeah. But I mean, the the point is, is that is this scripture then not true? If if the law if the law of God was so flawed that that that's why Christ came was to make it so we don't have to keep it anymore, then. Are, are all sixty six books of the Bible minus Psalm nineteen seven wrong? How do you yeah, know which verses to bl- to cling to and which will not? Well, Psalm one nineteen, the whole Psalm, the largest the largest chapter in the Bible would have to be taken out. I did a uh, I did a, a test one time and I that would make our Bibles lighter. Which here's the thing, okay? Here's the yeah. thing. I actually did this, and so maybe I can find it somewhere. I may I, I tried to make a meme. I went through every verse in Psalm 119 and I took out every verse that talked about the law being good to see how long it would be It was about 4 verses long the whole the whole of of Psalm 119 is talking about how great wonderful perfect enjoyable lovely the Torah of God is right
0: and of course it uses Torah but also it'll say statutes it'll say commandments it'll say
1: judgments um ordinances so right. the, uh, the the last thing, the last challenge for someone who's who might be listening to this and maybe I'll cut this as a clip because I like putting challenges out there for people. If you are a person who believes that the law has been fulfilled and, and void uh, and voided uh, the, by the death of the Messiah, then then I would like to the definition of what you mean by law. Yeah, and, that excellent point, Caleb.
0: Let's not assume that when—just like when the Jehovah's Witness come and tell me about Jesus or the Mormons come and tell me about Jesus, and I realize, okay, we're not all talking—we're using the same word, but we frame it differently. What you're saying is we need to do the same thing with law. Just because someone says the law, what ba- what baggage are they bringing with them when they bring that word? And and would we agree or disagree? I, 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 is, I was We sent- can only have these conversations in relationship, right? I can't—this is not a— a Starbucks drive-through kind of re, uh, interaction. You have to actually spend time with someone to get into the weeds and to
1: to see how they're framing this, their understanding of this particular word. The, here's the thing: is that is that uh, somebody uh, uh, Miguel 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 uh, uh, who often challenges us strongly on most of what we say Uh, but he sent me a video which was an interesting video and uh, i started to listen to it this morning and uh it was of a pastor who was saying well uh we're commanded to repent but that doesn't mean that we're commanded to necessarily change in other words if you're in an adulterous uh relationship uh and you uh repent Uh, preachers are going to tell you that that means you have to stop that adulterous relationship. But that's not what the Bible says. It just says repent. This is his basic, you know. And the reason that he says this is, well, if you say that you have to stop the adulterous relationship, even though that would probably be a good thing since it's wrong to be in an adulterous relationship, that's works-based, which means that you're going back under the law of Moses. So what this pastor has done, at least he's consistent his consistency, and maybe I should clip that for next for our next show. But at least he's consistent. What he's saying is, is that if you're going to say law of Moses, you have to take all of the laws. That includes the moral laws. Now there are going to be some people who say, well, it doesn't. It, it means uh, anything that uh, is reemphasized in the in the New Testament. Well, if that's the case, then we have a huge problem because bestiality and uh, and cross dressing are both not reemphasized in the apostolic scriptures. So then a lot of people say, well, it's the moral laws. But the c- ceremonial and civil laws are done away with. Okay, well, then the Sabbath should be kept since we have uh, – it's it said that we can profane the Sabbath, which is a moral issue. And it's and it gives the death penalty for people who, uh, who profane it, which is also a moral judgment. Or you can force other people to work
0: on the Shabbat, yeah. right? If I, if I say it's done away with, right, I could force people to work on Shabbat even when they're religious against their own maybe religious – uh, preferences, if you want to put it that way, and I but, can say, well,
1: but the point—the point the is—is point is that the idea of of law, when we say the law has, when people say the law has been done away with, what does that mean? What parts have been done done away with? Are we allowed to commit adultery? Are we allowed to murder? We're going to hear no, no, well, no, I no, think no.
0: You don't. They one line is only laws repeated in the New Testament. Yeah, but bestiality and cross
1: dressing are not re- repeated in the New Testament. So what does that mean? Does that mean that those those laws well, maybe are okay?
0: It's, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's anyone, any law that is not
1: reversed. I don't know. I'm just, I don't know. But that's the point: is that is that people keep using this, these ambiguous terms as if we're supposed to know exactly what they mean? You know, in the in the conversation between Wilbur and, and uh, this other Christian gentleman. You know, he said, well, the the, uh, the law of circumcision is a central part of the Mosaic law. No, it's not. It's a central part of the Abrahamic law. Or is this gentleman trying to say that the Abrahamic law isn't in, in place anymore? So, so there's this confusion on what, what it means for the people who are saying the law is done away with. There's this confusion on what the law actually is. Okay. Uh, we've we've uh, certainly exhausted many points of this. Um, I'm going to say that we're done for now. Uh, good conversation. See what happens when we... uh... Right, because the other thing we didn't talk about is how do we
0: know what sin is, right? So um, if sin is an important word for your modern-day American Christian, I know we're dealing with, we've got a lot of uh, part of our conversation partners are here in Canada and and UK and and elsewhere. So when I say American, maybe that's not fair. I mean uh, maybe the larger evangelical world. Um, but, uh, if, if sin is a part, oh, I, uh, you know, Jesus died for my sin. I think a lot of people will say that, but Caleb, along your same line, maybe they're, they haven't really thought through the implications of, okay, I've made sin now part of my theological, uh, underpinning, but now Do I, have I really framed what sin is appropriately, biblically? Um, And that's a good place to conversation uh, point with somebody and say, okay, so did Jesus die for your sin? They would say yes. And you could say, well, okay, what is sin? And, oh, sin is, uh, well, sin is, you know, uh, all have fallen short of the glory of God or wages of sin is death. Okay, so so sin brings death. Yes. What is sin? You know, you can keep doing that too. Anyway, not to, not to get a whole new directory, but we see there that Torah or law, sin, you know, these things uh, are
1: defined together as we dive in more and more. All right. Thank you so much to everybody in the chat room. It looks like we had, I mean, boy, there are some great minds. There are people in the chat room who could do this show better than us, uh, at least better than me. Maybe not Rob, but better than me. Um, and we thank you for being a part of, of the conversation and for uh, throwing us good uh, uh, controversy into our what we're saying and, and all that kind of stuff. Don't forget to give us a call, 253-465-3205. Uh, ple- please be praying for us as we uh, now are into the month of June. Uh, we have a deadline that uh, has been set that needs to be uh, met on getting our, our site up and running by the end of June. Michael, it's a, a miracle that he's in the chat room at all. Um, and Gary, for that matter. We're all working just to get this website done and uh, praying that the Lord will use it for, for his glory. Um, okay, if you have anything that you want to... Uh, uh, Say to us or if you have anything that uh, you'd like us to talk about on the show, we love getting those kind of emails because it helps us structure the show in a way that we, uh, you know, that that benefits everybody because we talk about things people want to hear about. So shoot us an email, chegg at com. That's C-H-E-G-G at com. You can also call our comment line, which I already gave to you. Don't forget to get to our resource and' find all sorts of great stuff. We will be back next week uh, with bells on ready to talk about more theological issues and we hope that uh, you enjoyed this conversation. I know that it was just a very quick glance at Paul and uh, we hope that uh, if anything, it glorified our great God and Savior Yeshua the Messiah.